Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures podcast brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking to Marie Taut, a student at SOAS. A conversation we had one evening at the Coding Club workshops presented the perfect opportunity to discuss the politics of language online. There are more than 7,000 languages on earth, yet half of the world's 7.5 billion people speak just 24 of them, and 95% speak just 400 of them. That leaves 5% of the global population spread across 6,600 different languages, hundreds of them now spoken by less than 10 people. Marie is doing an MA in Language Documentation and Description and has completed a BA in Language Sciences and BAs in South Asian Studies and Urdu and Teaching French as a Foreign Language, both at INALCO, the National Institute of Oriental Languages and Civilizations in France. Marie is also the project manager of the Saleti Project at SOAS University of London, which started as a group of students interested in documenting the Saleti language as spoken by various generations of members of a local community in the London borough of Camden. Hi, Marie. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Chipo. Thanks for this. So could you start by telling us a bit about how you got into studying linguistics and what your specific focus is? Most people who are interested in languages or linguistics start studying languages when they're younger. Today, it's, I suppose it's even easier. You just go to YouTube, you can see so many foreign films yeah. streamed. People now who are studying Korean because they've, they like K-pop or people who got interested in mangas and okay well let me read it in the original Japanese and because there's so much now not just written but recorded audio video out there with so many different languages much easier to get interested in languages. I personally began by actually studying just you know a foreign language in in high school and then it wasn't until I got to uni that I then discovered oh actually it's not this particular language that interests me it's how I can view languages in a scientific descriptive light so that I can analyze and pick apart and notice the the wonderful diversity and logic and of course language is not logic it's it's used it's created definitions meanings change all of the time interesting so why is it important then to safeguard languages maybe thinking about the importance of language in transferring information traditions cultures and ways of seeing to next generations And also just that idea of lingua franca languages. Yeah, why is it so important to safeguard these languages? That is the major question that linguists are faced with these days. Mm -hmm. Many people see languages or language diversity, multilingualism, as simply costing too much. To the point that, you know, these these 7,000 languages, over 7,000 languages of the world, spoken by so few people, why are people abandoning their languages? And it is socioeconomic pressures. And what is the importance of language in certain communities or traditions or cultures? As a linguist trying to find funding for various projects and things, I'm often faced with the question, well, why why save the language? Why keep it? For example, another question, well, the Jewish people, they didn't speak Hebrew for the longest time and they still remained Jewish in their identity. Why do you need language for an identity? Because language is complicated, that's why it really engenders and contains so much of identity and culture. 
when you have lived that culture, those words take on an umbrella of the culture. Once you got into things that really are basics, are fundamental to a culture, it is in that language. Today, many people actually call the lingua franca the national languages because everything is politicized and having political support for your language <laughs> actually has it and makes it grow. But when those lingua francas are politically engineered to denigrate the local native indigenous heritage language or multilingualism being seen as divisive, um, I suppose, because you can, if you're in power, you can become a little paranoid <laughs> that if you don't understand what all of your population is talking about, then maybe they're talking about you, which, you know, kind of goes down to the whole most monolingual speakers lack a skill that we often call ambiguity and tolerance. That uh, if, if you speak multiple languages, or if you spent time learning a language, you know that there are certain things you don't know, that you don't understand, and you build up a skill of ambiguity tolerance, that you understand that you might not know immediately or understand immediately, but if you just carry on with the communication, that you'll eventually understand. Whereas monolingual speakers who have never been in an environment where they're unfamiliar with the, the language or the forms of communication, they tend to have an ambiguity intolerance. Yeah. So it's, it's a skill that lacks. Yeah, really interesting. And I think it touches on so many aspects of politics, economics, lived experiences. It's very interesting. So why then do languages die out? And why? how do they and why do they become endangered? In the past, it was more likely that entire communities would simply die out because of natural disasters, diseases, and such like that. Today, it's usually socioeconomic pressures and political. For example, I've been working on the Salati language. 95% or so of the Bangladeshi Bengali identifying immigrants here in the UK actually speak Salati, not Bengali. Although Salati is not a recognized language, therefore they call it Bengali, which can really cause an identity problem. An identity crisis by young people, especially in the teenage years, is not good. It doesn't bode well for socialization, for integration, for confidence. <laughs> 11 million speakers, and not many people know about the language. It's underdocumented, uh, meaning that if it were to die, that there's not enough documentation, for example, to rebirth the language in a new form, or not enough documentation that its unique grammatical usages and its unique historical path from the Sanskrit Prakrit's you know, historical linguistics hasn't been documented or saved, it would be completely lost to humanity if the language dies. You know, a counterexample would be Icelandic. There are about 350, 400,000 Icelandic speakers, but then Icelandic has a national identity, it has support by a government, and you can receive services in Icelandic that you cannot in Saleti. And when I say services, this kind of goes to the whole coding club discussion that we had in that uh, Icelandic is in Unicode, it has been for a very long time, which means you can use it on digital devices. And even more importantly than being able to use it on digital devices is that there are digital devices that exist that accept Icelandic. Mm -hmm. Simply because you know Unicode is necessary, but then if you don't have vendors, vendors being Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, 
that then support your language, allow you to use your language on their devices, well, you know, having spent all the effort to make a Unicode proposal is very limited because you have to have that acceptance. And having a national government, a political body, uh, petition these vendors like Apple, Microsoft, Google, the big ones, um, it's important. And can you tell us more about Unicode and what that means or what the process is yes. when it um, comes to Unicode? So- <laughs> With uh, my experience with Saleti language, so Saleti, 10 years ago or so, a group of people submitted a Unicode proposal. So this group working on a translation of the New Testament in Saleti discovered that, well, let's do it in the Saleti Nagri script. So they did the Unicode proposal, which was great. My familiarity with Unicode was through the Saloti Nagri. How do I use it on my own laptop, on my devices? How do I get integrated, you know? The first languages that were written for thousands of years, it was only a particular profession who knew how to read and write. Mm-hmm. The average person didn't need to know how to read and write. There was no importance to that. But then with other technologies, other technological advances like paper and then printing presses, writing became so associated with language to this day, even, it's almost as if we give more importance to a written form as opposed to the spoken language. You know, today now, reading and writing is no longer the printing press. It's no longer the printed inked word. It's the digital word. So being able to access your language or see your language symbolically in devices that you use, that you're able to use, is important today. So Unicode is a process of standardizing a language or having it somehow recognized in written form? Yes. Well, so actually Unicode Foundation is an international body of volunteers who have been working, you know, on the internet from its beginning. And they understood from the beginning that once it went global, that there needed to be some kind of organization, a foundation that would standardize things. Otherwise, it would be a mess. What would work on which device? You'd have particular vendors, private vendors, trying to gain the field, and it wouldn't be accessible to everyone. So Unicode, their effort is to make things standardized, a standard form of recognition for devices so that the script and the language will show up. They'll develop a particular code for each glyph, for each letter, basically. The Unicode is the basis of, you know, if we want something visible on our screens, it's not just ones and zeros, that Unicode is important. Once you have your language or script recognized in Unicode, for example, I have the Saloti Nagri in my laptop. I'm able to manually add it to the Microsoft list of fonts. But for example, it's not visible in Word because Microsoft as a vendor hasn't included this particular Unicode proposal in their Word package. So I have to use OpenOffice, which is more open source. In the Sloti Nagri, just in the past two years, it's now available on your Android devices, on your iPhone devices, to the point where um, there are actually apps out there where you can create your own fonts. You can then start modifying the Unicode proposal and say, okay, well, this code for this letter, I will modify it slightly and it will appear this way. So actual users now are able to create their own fonts. But then what does that do to the... And I know standardization may or may not be a good thing, but like, what are the pros and cons of everybody being able to change the font 
to their liking or to a way that makes more sense for them? How does it then become unified again? I don't know. <laughs> As a document, it's a language describer. <laughs> I work with language documentation and description. I want to describe what people do. I don't want to tell people what to do. So for me, having a bottom-up process is much more important than the top-down. However, the top-down is the usual. Having an academy, like the French Academy, Italian Academy, saying, well, this is the proper spelling, this is the proper form, everything else is, again, air quotes, not correct. However, with digital technology, there is a dem democratization of usage to the point that the Saloti Nagri script is interesting because the, the group, when they were translating the Bible, they said, oh, well, the Saloti Nagri numerals, the numbers that are native to the Saloti Nagri script, nobody really knows them. They're not used very often. We'll just use Eastern Nagri or the Bengali Assamese numbers numerals. But now that there are people, actual speakers, who are able to develop their own fonts, but they are going into the Unicode proposal and they're making their own font where they're creating, so they are completely changing the Eastern Nagri Bengali Assamese numerals to the native Saloti Nagri numerals. So there are a few fonts of the Saloti Nagri script that contain the native numerals. I think having the opportunity of the, the communities, having this bottom-up process is very important. And with technology, the populations, the communities are able to put their input. There was a very interesting project with Haitian Creole French. The Haitian Creole government, Haiti, wanted to create a dictionary, a, you know, a form of their language. But the, the linguist who advised them was able to convince them that, well, hey, you know, your whole existence, Haitian Creole, you've been denigrated. Your status as a real language has been put into question because you're a Creole or you're just improper French, some people would say. So let's not do that to people because there are people who speak different dialects of Haitian Creole French. So what they did is say, well, let's go through, for example, Twitter. We, we can see when people are writing Haitian Creole. So obviously people are literate in Haitian Creole. I mean, because they're, they're using Twitter. Let's go through Twitter and let's data mine. So they created a dictionary of Haitian Creole where basically you, know, you, you can look up a word and you can say, well, this word is the most common usage, but it also this and this are second or third common usages. And that just, it's inclusive. It may be that eventually there will be a dominant form that becomes standard, but having that diversity, the variation recorded, at least it is much more inclusive. But apart from, um, let's say, writing, are there other technological advances that are promoting or limiting diversity of language online? Ah, yes. So now with digital technology, the field is quite more complicated. So with digital technology, you have Unicode and get in the written form recognized you know, on devices, in devices, by vendors. But then there's also groups. Well, let's just take Google. Google has their next billion campaign going on at the moment, whereas... You know, Google says they're able to access a billion users through the languages that are already supported in the Google platforms. So they want another billion users. The, the next billion, the diversity is, is much more abundant. <laughs> Writing is not language. Language is spoken. So with lots of digital technology now, why write? Why not simply do audio recordings? I mean, that is, that is a fundamental usage of language. However, data-wise, data treatment of audio is not as easy as codified written letters and such like that. And then text, you know, everyone's texting now. And it, it's a misnomer to say that there's really anyone who's illiterate these days. I think almost everyone around the world, they're very, of course there are some, I'm sure there, of course there are some who don't have access to digital devices, but almost everyone with a digital device 
is literate in something or another. Most likely they're texting in their language, so they just don't realize it is written. And whichever script they're using, some people use forms of the Roman alphabet in various, like, Arabic speakers before they had the different keyboard options, which is, has exploded as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Google creating on their Android device, creating so many different keyboard mm-hmm. options. You have to have that keyboard option. Before those keyboard options were available, people would use the Roman script. And like, if you see people writing, using the Roman script to write Arabic, they use the three for the sound. There's different different letters combining, and people have a way of making things work. But now with recorded technology, so with AI and voice recognition, so voice recognition is now the biggest thing. I think there've always been already been complaints like the uh, various voice recognition systems, like uh, Apple Siri, they don't really recognize, say, the Manchester or Liverpool or Scottish accents as well as they do the standard. And what's happening, I suppose, to a small degree at the moment, is that these non-standard speakers, non-standard again in air quotes are having to change the way they speak to use this technology. And as a linguist, I see that and I cringe because it's, it's the technology then is changing how people use language instead of the technology adapting to the way people use language. And if you think, you know, the other varieties of English other than the standard dialect, you know, will they be lost? Will people be forced to capitulate and change the way they speak? Maybe not, probably not, because they have a big enough sociopolitical base and their identity is solidified to a certain degree that maybe not as much. But then when Google or Apple, Android and iPhones are entering into these markets where there maybe are only 10,000 speakers of a certain language or those 10,000 speakers also speak another language. Let's not you know, codify their language because they're bilingual enough in that other language. If groups don't present themselves as a consumer group that's worthy enough what's going to happen to them. And then even when they do present themselves as maybe a consumer group that Google or Facebook or Apple have taken interest in, sometimes language is really, really complicated. Like I mentioned Icelandic earlier. Icelandic is very, very difficult to translate. It's uh, digitally, people are having problems with it. To the point that, you know, if you really want to challenge, you try to uh, use you know, Icelandic to test your, your different programs and such. Yeah. But then there are also many, many other languages, much more complicated than Icelandic, and I'm thinking of many of the African continental languages, which have grammatical tone, which some linguists can't even analyze yet because they're so complicated. I attended a, a talk by a couple of people from Google, and they were saying, oh, well, we were working on this one West African language, Unfortunately, we've had to change the way people count. And as a linguist, it's like, what? <laughs> like fear, just it's like, what? Huh? Simply because the voice recognition didn't like the way they were counted. It was hard to recognize the differences between certain numerals. So Google just decided, well, if you want your numerals recognized, if you want to be able to like voice recognition, you know, say the f- telephone number instead of typing it into your phone, well, you're going to have to change the way you count because basically this is how you this is how you have to do it in order to voice recognize telephone number. It's like what? But then that's it. I mean, does Google with their Android devices give voice recognition op- option to this community when they can by modifying the language, or do they respect the language and not do anything with it until technology is advanced enough to be able to recognize subtle differences in voice? that written language has reduced to. 
there, there are gives and takes. I also think that the topic of language on the internet, we've already said it's political, but the internet is predominantly English. 60% of the internet is English, although only 10 to 15% of the world's population speaks English. And as you were speaking about either people having to change how they communicate to use uh, technology or just waiting to receive those digital services until technology catches up and accepts their mode of communication, that really does contribute, again, to the global digital divide, whereby English speakers or speakers of other dominant languages enjoy the full benefit of the internet and its social and cultural significance. So how would you say that the internet is contributing to political or cultural tensions on a global and local level? And I remember when we did speak at Coding Club, I was doing a project about Facebook in Myanmar, where just on that local scale, that platform has been used to attack the Rohingya people who don't have access to digital technology, who don't have a voice online. And that narrative can really turn against them. I don't know if you have anything to say about this, like political and cultural tensions, and if you have any examples of such. So again, Facebook treated Burmese speakers as a consumer group, and they wanted to access the consumers. They weren't interested in, you know, safeguarding diversity. Basically, internet in Myanmar became Facebook. Facebook was free on digital devices, on mobile devices. So therefore, Facebook was internet. To the point that, you know, people were using it, great. Uh, Facebook had access to all these consumers, access to all this data. This writing is a tool that Facebook didn't control and that the Myanmar Buddhist community used to stoke racial tensions and perpetuate violence against a minority community. And that's it. On a global stage, these minority communities, are they worthy enough consumers? Because in the end, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, they're businesses and they want consumers. So we do need to rely on national governments to protect their minorities. How do national governments work with these huge vendors? Do we want people to have a relative importance based on the type of consumer they are? Do we want to respect cultural diversity? How do we get these larger bodies to value something that actually costs money? Because again, we're in a ideologically capitalist world and doing a cost-benefit analysis you know, if their language dies, that's fine. It, it costs less. They'll just all speak everyone's language. And if you think about it, there have been a few studies in the Americas about what happens to these communities that are cut off. You know, the horrible instances of uh, the stolen generations in Canada, in, in the United States, in Australia. Children t purposely taken away from their families. You know, there'd be a cut off of cultural transmission, language included. And there are higher rates of alcoholism, which if anything that touches a person's identity, they don't have as much confidence, they have higher rates of unemployment, higher rates of drug abuse, alcoholism. Just losing that language transmission basically condemns generations to be second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Australia, you know, Aboriginal communities are still trying to fight to get that community identity, to get back to this, this idea that they're worthy, that 
that they're not second-class citizens. The language is involved in almost every aspect of our lives. That to think that, oh, we can just simply translate one language to another. So the value system isn't translated. A lot of people who have internalized the supposed substandard nature to their, their native languages, they'll often say, oh, well, you know, my language isn't written. We can't do maths. We can't do science in my language. There aren't the words for it. Well, then you create the words. That's how language works. You simply create. If you think about it, 20 years ago, tweet, retweet, to like as a verb, language change. You invent new, new words, new languages. So there's nothing inauthentic about new heritage languages inventing new words. Well, you can also borrow words, but why not invent your own? So in the digital age then, how can language be preserved? What are the methods of preserving language online or promoting diversity of language online? You know, there's different companies, as we mentioned, probably Google is a name that we'll mention over and over because, as you said, with their next billion, they're trying to get more language into their voice recognition and into their Google search and translate, etc. But, you know, what other ways are linguists or other projects where diversity of language is trying to be promoted in digital medias and technologies? In the domain of field linguistics, we'll yep. call this, it's called field linguistics. So these butterfly collectors <laughs> who work on documentation and description to go out to try to save these 6,000 so many languages before there are so few speakers that the richness of the language is from the field linguistics, you have the documentation description, and then you also have the revitalization. The documentation description over the past 30 years, since the 1990s, a few linguists working in the 1990s, field linguists, started recognizing that language death was happening quite rapidly. I think in the 1990s and 2000s, they were saying that, um, I forget what those statistics were at that time, that half of the world's language would be dead in 100 years. Uh, now they're saying that one language dies every day or one language dies every week. Yeah. So they've, they've readjusted those statistics since the 1990s and 2000s. But that cry was like, oh goodness, we need to really fund language documentation. So there was a new career option for linguists mm. to become butterfly collectors. Mm. <laughs> so SOAS had their the Endangered Languages Archive. It's like a big fund, 10 million pounds. All that money was gone after 10 years, though. <laughs> So they're still looking for more funding. Dobes, Volkswagen created another archive and started funding language documenters to go out to the field to you know, document these languages, to bring them back to what are called endangered languages archives, which want to contain audio and digital recordings that are then transcribed and glossed and translated to make these recordings, audio and visual, accessible to the point where some critics of the endangered language archives say, well, they're archives, they're like cemeteries. You're putting these endangered languages, you know, to be mummified until, you know, someone wants to go back and study them academically. So it's not really doing anything for the posterity of the language. So in addition to the documentation description came the revitalization. Revitalization is a little bit uh, guilty of the white savior complex. Mm. You know, assist communities in maintaining and or revitalizing their endangered languages. Of course, revitalization doesn't receive as much funding, but then it's also something that an outsider can't come and do. An outsider can't come to a community and say, hey, your language is endangered. You're not speaking your language to your kids. Do it. There's so much has to be addressed. The socioeconomic ideas, having national governments recognize different languages, 
So in the, in this revitalization, there are lots of very encouraging case studies. Uh, Maori in New Zealand, the Hawaiian language, Cree has been very successful. Cree is an Amerindian language in North America. Um, Canada has several languages. There, there is actually a group of coders coding in an Amerindian language. Um, however, I think it's like superficial. They've basically just created this type of code in, in their language, kind of. Then it's like middle stage. It then translates to the coding in English. But it, symbolically, it shows young people that it is possible. I don't really see coding in English as a huge problem in that it is abstra abstract enough that non-native speakers can take it over. Even in, in India now that they have a Hindu nationalist government there, they want, they want to uh, impose Hindi. And of course, you know, the economic advances of the southern states in India are because they refused Hindi as a lingua franca and wanted English as a lingua franca. So when we talk about India and coding and call centers, most of that happens in the southern states in India who didn't want domination from the Hindi-speaking north and a way of saying, well, we don't want Hindi-speaking north to dominate us. We're going to pick a colonial language, which seems for many people and many nations, countries around the world, picking a colonial language was less divisive. Lots of African countries did this too. Lots of countries in Africa when they were faced with, you know, what language do we make the official language of our country? Well, you had so much language diversity. And of course, the African countries were not made <laughs> so that they contained a nation. They, they, the borders cut, you know, partitioned communities everywhere in the African continent um, to the point that they said, well, look, we're not going to favor one domestic group. You know, we're not going to make Wolof or Pol or we'll use English. Although now that you know, digitization is making learning more democratic. Some African countries are trying to uplift their indigenous heritage language. Because language does, again, not only does it touch almost every aspect of our individual personal identities, but you know, it also is how we interact with other people in the world. And, and now that we're coming so global, you know, there are lots of people say, wouldn't it be better if we just all spoke the same language? Well, which generations are you going to sacrifice? to do that so that we all speak the same language. Of course, usually the people say, why don't we all speak the same language? Are those who already speak a dominant language mm. or, who, or who have had access to learn a dominant language? Mm. And something that's, again, a little counterintuitive in linguistics that I've um, come across is that, for example, with my work with Saleti community here in London and then online as well, you know, Saleti and Bangla speakers use social media the hardest people to convince that Saleti is a language is not necessarily Bangla speakers. It's not the speakers of the dominant language natively. It's Saleti speakers who have invested so much social capital in learning Bangla as a standard language in order to access everything that's accessible when you know the standard language, jobs, government positions, social capital, social status. Those people who have invested so much in that don't want to lose that social status gain. I'm sure it's got to be that way in, in many communities around the world that's, you know, in various places where people have learned the dominant national language, have invested and made so many efforts to learn the dominant national language. They see that as a benefit for them. And then if every, you know, if, if their native language is suddenly recognized, all of that work they did to learn the national language to such a degree is somehow compromised. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great conversation. There's just so many 
different aspects. That's why I was so excited to interview you and have this conversation. It's really, really important. So to discover more about this topic, you can access the resources available in the show notes on our website. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital futures.